be looking at uh, Psalm 16. So if you uh, have an outline in your uh, folder there, your worship folder, I hope that you do, um, you'll be able to follow along there um, with a couple of points that are going to be made. Uh, as you're turning to Psalm 16, um, it's interesting to think about psalms and psalms, which is what they are, worship psalms or hymns. Uh, a Scottish political activist in the late 1600s, Andrew Fletcher, said this, Let me write the song of a nation, and I don't care who writes this law. What's he saying there? His point is, if you want to impact an entire people group, give me their songs over their laws. Because songs have so much greater sway over the psychology and pathology of the people group themselves than even compared to their laws. So the power of songs is really amazing when we think about it. They have the ability to shape and form us uh, as much as laws in a land do. And we have that in the songs. When we look at the breathtaking creation of who God is in the songs, all the way to the isolating personal grief and depression that comes in life that can hang over us like an unending cloud that doesn't stop. We get permission in the Psalms to be fully human before God. And God puts His incredible attributes on display in the Psalms to call His people to belief during really difficult circumstances, which produces in us a hope that is impervious to the circumstance itself. And they call us to behold and believe in the person and work of God Himself to the point where we join together and say, Great is our God. That's what the Psalms do. We're so grateful for the Psalms in the canon of Scripture. And today we're going to look at Psalm 16 and discover how to encounter insecurity with security. Uh, since the fall of man in Adam, the standard human experience has been shaped by rebellion and shame in life. And there's not enough big leaves in the garden to cover ourselves because that shame that we feel is on the inside. It's because we've rejected God as our maker and as our creator, and we've also rejected then fellowship with him and with one another, and with even creation itself, which we're going to talk about today. But that's become the standard human experience, and that shame creates an enormous amount of insecurity in us. We don't feel secure because of that distance and disconnection between God and others and ourselves and our world. And it can be crippling in our lives. And we see that brokenness externally around us in the world when you look at the masses, but also when you look at the mirror and you look at yourself and you think about what your life is. Who is going to love me? The question of, of identity and in intimacy. Who's there for me? Who am I? Who's going to love me? And then impact. What am I going to do in this life, in this world? Those are core questions that every person is born with. Who am I? Who will love me? And what am I here to do in life? That's a core human question. Uh, and God has given us an answer to those questions. And so it begs the question, is there true security possible in this incredibly broken life that we live in? Is that possible? And then how can I experience it? How can I experience that security when life and its wheels seem to be coming off all the time. Psalm 16 is, is called a mictum. It's a liturgical term, which no one knows what it means. Uh, but we know that there are six of these uh, in the Psalms, and they're all written during David's outfall years, between the time when he was anointed to the time where he actually became king. And during that time, 
The people already had a king, and his name was Saul, and he was pursuing David in that space. So let's start with just reading the Psalms together. Psalm 16 says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Let's just stop right there. Verse 1. We're going to start with the first point here. The secure rest in God alone. And insecurity is explained in idolatry. Verses 1 through 4. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Right? So imagine the insecurity of being a small, insignificant shepherd who has just been anointed king by one prophet out in the middle of nowhere in a small town, and no one else knows about it but him to you. The insecurity of, I'm supposed to believe this, right? When we already have a king like the other nations of great stature and great import, who has a huge army, that's incredible reason for personal inadequacy. And then David has been betrayed by his wife at this home, at this point, lost his home and land and place in society, and now he's being pursued to death by the jealous king. He's become literally public enemy number one to him. Where does he go? Where does he turn to? And it's in this context that he says, Preserve me, O God. And he calls him El. In Hebrew, that means the strong one. When he says, preserve me, that means diligently keep my life. Diligently keep my life. Preserve me. This is the same way that Jesus refers to God on the cross. Be my refuge, the strong one. He is our deepest security when all the other props in life are gone. See, weakness seeks strength and comfort when exposed. Vulnerability finds great refuge in the strong one. The point is this, God's divine person and power is at the center of David's faith. You have to see that. So where do you run for refuge when the pressure is on? Where do I run when the pressure is on? Tim Keller, late pastor, says this, you truly see that God is all you need when you realize he is all you have. You truly see that God is all you need when you realize he is all you have. Are you looking to the strong one today to preserve and keep your life when it seems to be coming unglued? And I know that we've all had that experience. Verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, you've got to catch some subtleties that are going on right here. That's not a redundancy. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You see in your text that those are spelled differently. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is referring to Yahweh, the covenant God. So he's thinking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, which means Adonai, or master. So what he's saying, you got to catch this, it's powerful. Yahweh, the covenant God of our people, who has revealed himself and rescued us and redeemed us, you are my Adonai, my functional Lord and Master. Think about that. We can name who God is, but is he your functional Lord and Master? And David's acknowledging that those two things are distinct, and yet he's saying there's a oneness there. And when that one oneness happens, we are able to take refuge in who God is. So the question is, I know today that a group like this would say, Lord, you are our God. 
while at the same time our hearts are given to something else that's our functional Lord and Master. What is that thing? We're going to talk more about that as we explore this idea. But in moments of intense insecurity, y'all, we name our God. We give our confession of faith with our life. And we can say with our mouth that Yahweh is our Lord. But what does our life say is our Lord? What does our life say is our functional master? What does our life say our hope really is within? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of the mouth when the wheels come off in your life? Spurgeon says it this way. The mouth is the prime minister of the whole man. The mouth is the prime minister of the whole man, announcing the interior state of the union. Right? So what is our mouth saying about what the interior state of the union is? Is it chaos? And who is our Lord and functional master in our lives? Even though we may claim Yahweh, David considers two types of people here. Those who name Yahweh as their master and Lord, and those who run after other gods. That's what he juxtaposes. He identifies himself with those who cast their full allegiance on God himself. These are his heroes, he says. These are the saints in the land. And he identifies with them. Those are the people he wants to emulate. It says in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And I just think about you guys. Y'all are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As we have to worship in this community for several, several years in our story here in Jacksonville. See, listen, your heroes say tons about your values. Because we tend to make heroes out of those who really are manifestations of what we value. Right? So if you want a great career, you pick a person who actually embodies that career that you want. And you start thinking about what do they do? How did they get there? Et cetera, et cetera. Our heroes say something about our values. And David is saying, the excellent ones, the saints, those who have gone before me, they are the ones in whom is my great delight. I even think that he was probably thinking about Abraham, right, in Hebrews 11, who left his home looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God himself. Like Joseph, who saw the exodus coming and gave instructions to what his bones ought to be done with and following in the promised land. Like Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to the reward. Their excellence is God's glory displayed in their lives through faith. And this is what David is saying when he talks about the excellent ones. And, he, and then he says, apart from him, there is no trace of anything that can be called good. All graces are God's alone. All the graces in your life are God's alone. Everything comes from Him and through Him, to you and to me. These moments of deep insecurity just highlight and display that the exclusivity of goodness is God alone and resting in Him. So why is it that we struggle with God plus fill in the blank equals hope and security? What is that thing that you fill in the blank with? Yeah, I got God. I got Yahweh. We're boys. But what I really need is this right now. What is the fill in the blank? And it's this, because that's the second group. Whatever's in the blank is the thing we tend to worship. 
That's the thing we tend to hope for. So he says this in, in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That is so scary. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Listen to that imagery. People running, actively pursuing idols. Their sorrows are literally multiplying. Not just adding, but literally there's a multiplicity to them. It's just complex. You think about the brokenness that you've seen in your own family or extended family or in the world around you, the multiplicity of complex sorrows that people are navigating, that you're navigating, a lot of those have come from brokenness that are caused by idolatry, worshiping something that's not God, a vanity, an empty, so to speak. I just said in Ecclesiastes, here's an absolute truth, and I've been talking to college students for 30 years, plenty of atheists have I run into, secularists, you name it, I've never had anybody disagree with this statement, ever, about the read on humanity. People pursue whatever they believe will give them life. People pursue whatever they believe will give them life. And everyone is on that pursuit. No one's ever disagreed with that because that's what we were made to do. Insecurity is explained in idolatry. Listen to what Richard Keyes said in his book, No God But God. This is a chilling expression of idolatry. Idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world. If we don't want to face God himself in his majesty and holiness, rather than look to the creator and have to deal with his lordship, we orient our lives toward the creation, where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in the desired directions. Since then, we were made to relate to God, but do not want to face Him and let Him control and shape us. We forever inflate things in the world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. We don't just eliminate God, but we erect God's substitute in His place. Inflating something to God's size portion and then bowing down before it, asking it to give me life. That's the picture of idolatry. And Israel had gone from worshiping the only God who revealed himself by glorious acts of power on display in the Exodus to a stick of wood that they also cooked their meals over in Isaiah 44. It's a scathing read on the heart of my heart and your heart and the brokenness of humanity. Romans 121 through 25 says, They exchanged the glory of God and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Think about that. There's two keys to idolatry for us to understand in that one verse. It is this. What you worship, you will serve. Those things are inextricably bound together. What you worship, you will serve. What rules my heart will exercise inescapable influence over the landscape of my life. And see, man is designed to worship. And God's nature is to be worshipped. We were a perfect fit for him. We were made for that. We were like a mirror reflecting the beauty and the glory of the sun. Think about that. If you look at a mirror directly as it's reflecting the sun, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Maybe the heat. But in terms of light, it will blind you. We are like that. We were made to image God like that all over creation and to bring his glory to the world in that regard. But what happens when you put a mirror and put it in front of another mirror? Y'all ever done that before? It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's just endless. It's endless emptiness. 
And that's a picture of what we've done. We have worshipped creation rather than the creator. And our image-bearing nature has become emptiness to us. That's a picture of idolatry. The second key to idolatry is that we're transformed by what we worship. It's not just that you're going to serve what you worship, but you're going to be transformed by the thing that you worship. Listen to this. In Psalm 115, 5-9, Idols have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but don't feel. They have feet, but don't walk. And they make not a sound in their throat. And then this is crazy chilling to me. Those who make them become like them. They're dead. So those who make them become like them. That's the progression of idolatry. You start worshiping something in this creation and elevating it to a God-sized proportion in your heart, asking it to bring you life. It will delude you to your reality, and then it will enslave you to what it wants, and then you will find yourself being killed off systematically, and then ultimately it will curse you forever. That's what idolatry does. So when God says, worship me alone in the first commandment, He's protecting us and giving us life by calling us to exclusively worship Him alone. That is for our good and His glory. Those things are bound together. Do you believe that? That your goodness and the glory of God is bound together to operate that way. There is a multiplicity of resultant sorrows for those who worship idols. Deuteronomy 27 calls it a cursed life. And Deuteronomy catalogs the covenant curses that will come if the people of God get into the promised land and start worshiping idols. And they are famine, cannibalism, child sacrifice, and that is precisely what we read. It's scary. All the way through uh, Judges, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd uh, Chronicles, and into uh, right before the Psalms, it's a scary read on humanity with what idolatry does. See, this was Israel's fundamental problem, and it's our fundamental problem across the canon of scriptures, idolatry. David knew that. He knew that right after God covenanted, covenanted with his formed people, Israel, at Sinai, and gave them the law, that when they came down, there they are, worshiping a calf. It just popped out, Aaron said, right? It just, we just threw it in, and it just popped out. There it is. And the people started worshiping it. Why would they do that out in the wilderness? Because Moses was gone for a while. They thought they were alone. Their insecurity needed to be placated. So they forced Aaron to make this golden calf that they then bowed down and worshipped. David knew that story. The people wanted to make an idol to deal with their insecurities of feeling lost in the wilderness. And you and I are no different. They wanted to make something that they could control and manipulate because that's what idols are selling. They're selling you that if you worship me, you will be able to control your circumstances. It's interesting how superstitious we are when it comes down to it. If I do the right thing, then I can manipulate my life to have the right outcome. That's the, that's the core of, of worshiping an idol. And so their sorrows were multiplied when they rejected God and made allegiances with the surrounding nations instead of trusting Him to be their refuge. They made allegiances. You can read those stories in Isaiah. And it literally led to worshiping those gods of Moloch and Baal, and it resulted in famine. 
It resulted in cannibalism as a result, and then it resulted in child sacrifice. And we hear that and go, man, that's terrible. That would never happen today. But who knows of a story of a couple that has sacrificed their children on the altar of the pursuit of a career? I know that story. That story's in my family. And we watched it play out in front of us. That kind of thing happens all the time. And the covenant curses fell on them. And David is saying this is so dangerous that he won't even participate or speak of doing it. The scary thing is, is later in his story, he does do that when he sees Bathsheba. And he murders her husband. And he marries her. And they have a child. One dies and they have another one. And the next thing you read is his story and his own family. A multiplicity of sorrow outbreaks in David's story when he breaks the very thing that he says he's not going to break. See, we tend to think that we are defined by our needs in this world, but the Bible says we're defined by our God. That is our identity. And the sorrows will pile up with multiplicity when we replace Yahweh and seek to dethrone him in our lives and exalt ourselves. I had a call even while preparing this sermon this past Tuesday with a guy who is, he calls me re, uh, frequently to get advice, just spiritual counsel. And uh, he lives in Denver, Colorado, and he, he said, Joe, I'm, I'm so messed up. I feel so far from the Lord. And I was like, well, tell me what's going on. And he's, he's an entrepreneur, he's got his own business, and he says, I need $2,900 a day for my life to function. This business, the people, the employees, et cetera, I, you know, I hear that in times 365, it's like, okay, you know, a million dollars a year for this guy's life to operate. And he says, I've checked my bank account every single hour, and I can't stop. I'm just looking at my account to see if at the end of the day, today, I'm going to end in a negative or end in a positive. And he's obsessing over the need to control his finances because his security is tied to that, what would it look like for him to actually let go and trust God with his will for his business and his will for him as a person because he knows him and he loves him? That's what happens is we doubt the goodness of God and we seek control as a result of that. And we doubt his power to control things for our good and his glory. And so we seek to usurp his throne in doing that. Listen, idolatry says, my pursuit of control leads me to feel completely out of control. Isn't that interesting? Idolatry literally curses you. If you need control, it will literally make you feel out of control. If you need approval, guess what? It will lead you to feel rejected and disapproved of all the time, relationally. If you need comfort, it will make you feel enormously discontent. If you need power, it will make you feel utterly helpless. This is what life on an idol looks like. I think of a seesaw, teetered, right? And it pivots on that idol. And on one side, you have, I don't have it. I'll never get it. Fear and anxiety. On the other side, I have it. How do I keep it? Anger and anxiety. Life on the idol. It's not a life worth living in that regard. It's not what we were made for. Listen to this story about men's secret wars, uh, a book. By all accounts, Rich Chalet had everything. Born the son of a French uh, immigrant, he rose to the head of Brookstone, a successful national mail-order business. He was good-looking, happily married, loved by his employees, and as it turned out, deeply depressed. One March morning, seemingly out of the blue, Chalet took his life. 
He simply locked the garage door with New Hampshire House, climbed into his BMW, and turned on the engine. And when they found him, they also found the note that he had written his family, please forgive me, but the thought of going through the torture of living is just too much to bear. His wife, Susan, later revealed that Chalet had been depressed for half of his adult life. People had put him on such a pedestal, she said, that he had constantly feared letting them down. And listen to this. This is killing. He swung from feeling totally powerful to totally helpless. That is what an idol will do. It will crush every single one of us. The exclusive call to worship Yahweh alone is for his glory and our good. The secure take refuge in the exclusivity of God alone, trusting he himself is the definition of good to them. The second point, the, the secure receive God's will with thankfulness. Insecurity is exposed by fear. Look at 5 through 7. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. See, David sharply contrasts against idol worshiping uh, and, and, and by calling the Lord his, his portion and his cup. I mean, think about that. His portion and his cup. The portion is the, the thing in it. The cup is the delivery system. And he's saying Yahweh is both my portion and my cup. So he's saying omnipotence is my portion. All sufficiency is my portion. Unending love is my proportion, is my portion. And the question for us is, are we disappointed with that? Would we rather have cars and money and looks and health and obedient kids and a great career, all of creation, rather than the creator himself? Is it boring or is it thrilling that God is alone is your good and your, your portion? In giving us himself, God has given us the solution to our greatest need as sinners. And only love does that. He calls God his portion and his cup. That means God is the goal and God is the means. He's the what and the how. So you fight idols and their sorrows with fullness in him. If you go to the grocery store, it, what's going in that cart? About half the store, if you're like me. Like, oh, I need that. I need that. I'm hungry. Ooh, I feel that right now. Let's get it off. And you wind up overspending. But what happens when you go in the grocery store and your stomach's full? You can actually go in and get what you need and come back. And I'll spend over 35 bucks or whatever it is. You just get what you need. The idea there is that I think some of us often try to go through life on empty, spiritually, and try to maintain this fullness in God and allegiance to Him on empty, rather than fighting emptiness with fullness in Him and a pursuit of Him. And worshiping truly Him. We had a dog. Some of y'all are like, you gotta be kidding me, that dog is still alive. The dog is still alive. She's 15 years old. She's a little miniature dachshund. At this point, her breath is rancid. But, and so, but Harley Forever has been feeding her this tiny little bowl with this cup of food, and Lizzie will go in there and she will pick out the stuff she doesn't like lay it on the ground, and then eat the stuff she does like. And think about that. What a visceral picture. And it's a read on us, y'all, if we just be honest. We want to pick through our cup and look at the portion that God has given us when he says, I've given you me. And we go, ah, can I pick that out? I want to 
remove that, I want to remove that, can I get a little of this? That's how we relate to him in so many different ways. That's how we relate to him. And David also points at the Lord holding his life. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he says. I have a beautiful inheritance. So he points at his life, his holding, his inheritance, calling them pleasantly placed. Now remember the concept. This guy is a bandit on the run, public enemy number one, living outside the land, and he's saying his, his inheritance is pleasant and beautiful. How is that? The Hebrew word there is correct. And it's talking about his land, his lot, which is a share in the promised land. He's pointing back to the conquest and the promised land. He's pointing back to Joshua and the distribution done by the tribes there, with reference to being kicked out of his own by Saul. And he's thinking of the Levitical priesthood and their inheritance. See, they didn't get land. What did they get? They got the Lord as their portion. And he's saying, I get it. I get it now. They didn't get the short end. They got it all. They got Yahweh himself and the privilege of being in his presence forever. He is the ultimate inheritance. And here's the question. Do you and I have the humility to receive our life as God's best for us? And I say it that way specifically. Do we have the humility to receive our life as God's best for us with thankfulness and contentment? Many have lost their jobs. Many have lost spouses. Many have lost their homes. Many have lost health. Many have lost a lot of things. But if you have God, you have everything. Can you say it well with my soul with David? If you have Yahweh, you have everything. In Job 1, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate my worship of who God is and what he's done for me. See, we live between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, where it is chaos and redemption is unfolding in that space. So what are the lines that are revealing a misplaced hope in your life, a core trust in your life? What lines have fallen in your life today? I can think about every person in this room. You all have lines in which God is sovereignly engaging you with the limits and the boundaries and the lines in your life, the contours of your life, your health, your job, your career, your relationship, your experience. Those are all boundary lines, lot lines that are falling in your story. And he's giving them to you to say only one thing. All you need is me. You don't need that to be replaced in another scenario. You need me in your scenario. So what are the lines revealing about your core trust? What is fear and anxiety and insecurity exposing in a misplaced hope? Listen, those lines or portions can only fall in pleasant places when you see them as vehicles or cups to the true line. That this tent is not my home. That this treasure is in jars of clay. That you're a co-heir, a bride of Christ, an eternal son and daughter. That's your inheritance and lot line. That's your portion. In 2006, Carly and I, we discovered in January that she had seven lumps and one breast. And she had passed an exam in August. And we knew in a couple of weeks she was going to have to have bilateral mastectomy. That then led to 
discovering that she has a BRCA1 gene and then had to have a total hysterectomy because that put her at a 90% chance of having ovarian cancer, which is not detectable. And so they, you know, the doctors asked them, do you want to have any more kids? Because we got to take out our, our whole uterus, all that. And then six months of chemotherapy, two months of radiation. I remember Carly with no hair, no breasts, no uterus. I mean, all the three major identifiable marks as a woman got removed. And I picture her at Christ's covenant in Charlotte worshiping in a wig. And it just undoes me because I've beheld somebody doing this, living this way, saying, Lord, it's well with my soul because all I need is you in this life. And then fast forward 10 years later, we're living in Jacksonville. We drive by Mayo when we buy our house. I'm like, oh, goodness. I see it right there. I'm going over Butler. <laughs> I don't even want to look at it because who knows what our future is. And sure enough, Chemo, 10 years later, wrecked her heart with congestive heart failure. Now she's waiting in Mayo for a month for a heart transplant. So many people in this room were praying for us and giving us food, all kinds of things. Probably hard to watch, you know? A mom living in Mayo while the dad's trying to keep life going and kids at Fletcher High School going. I mean, it was nuts. But the Lord sustained us in those times. And I'm just here to tell you that you know, somebody asked us, I think in an interview, as we were telling our story, would you wish it was different? And there's a huge part of me that was like, no, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But then there's another part of me that's right there saying, I wouldn't wish it was different. And we said to each other, we don't wish it was different. Why? Because we got Yahweh in a unique way that only that pain could bring. And we got each other in our marriage in a unique way that only that experience would weld us together in Him. Like that. So we don't curse God for what He chooses to bring to us to bear. We say, Lord, where are you in it so that I can get you and know that this life is not the one I'm living for. I'm living for the eternal. These things are temporal. And I'm fixing my eyes on that which is eternal, which is you and my inheritance with you forever. Where there is no more pain or crying or mourning, and the old order of things has gone away. Pain in life isn't the islands in the human experience, it's the ocean. Sorry, you invited a cynical person, you just kidding. That's the reality though, right? That's how we experience life. We have islands of happiness in an ocean of pain, but God is redeeming that to where there will be no more pain one day. And David saying, this is the counsel of the Lord, instruction from him in his innermost being that he's referencing. It comes in the silences of the night while you're watching the fan blade spin and pray and surrender to God's will for you. Are you full of fear and angst and bitterness? God is saying, I'm for you and I'm with you and you can rest in him. See, the answer to idolatry is humble thanksgiving. And I actually had to start a thankfulness journal through the midst of all that because I had to go in and identify the things that I'm thankful for. And we said to each other, there are so many people that had it so much harder than us. So many people like, I don't know how you went through that. And we're like, there's people out there who had it a lot harder than us. And we immediately would think about our children over us. Really difficult, some of the things that even you guys have, have gone through. But the answer to idolatry is humble thanksgiving and being fascinated with God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Are you fascinated with God's love for you in Christ Jesus? Oftentimes 
we treat God's love for us, I know I do. It's like a bathtub filled with water, and I keep doing the thing, and it keeps bleeding out the water, and eventually I'm going to be left there in the bathtub with no more love of God because I've done it one too many times, whatever that it is. That is not the love of God for us. Romans 6 gives us a, gives us a love that describes God's love, and in essence, it is a bottomless, shoreless ocean that we can't plumb the depth of or discover the ends of. That's God's love for us. And we need to know that. So how do we fight off the unbelief of insecurity? This is the last point. The secure rejoice in God's presence. Insecurity is expelled by superior joy. Verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh rejoices well secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let the Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love it, because David starts this thing off as an announcement. He goes down into the, 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 the rugged nature of a human heart and idolatry, and then lifts up, up into this place of the right hand of God in heaven. And this psalm is often called a golden psalm because of these verses right here. That under the inspiration of God himself and the Holy Spirit, David is hoping in the Holy One of his line who would come and not be shaken and not see corruption. Jesus Christ, who would be the very path of life. I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. The one of whom David was simply a type the real king from Bethlehem, whose suffering on a hill would conquer death, securing eternal life for all of his people forever. And Peter and Paul chose this song to point to Jesus and the hope of resurrection as being our true cup, our true portion of Yahweh himself. Listen, y'all, this is not a moralistic sermon to say, be like David. This is a sermon to say, look to the greater David and put your faith and hope in him who gave his life to usher in his kingdom. Listen, he went on public record with my shame and your shame and the undesirable boundary lines of our lives and the consequences. And his lot and his portion was judgment of God. His portion was hell. And he drank that cup of wrath all the way down. Faithfully entrusting himself to the Father in humble obedience, and the Father accepted his lot as our lot, and we got his lot by faith. We got his inheritance forever. And so Peter, also inspired by God, interpreted these verses, Psalm 16, in his first sermon. I mean, think about that. The first sermon of the first church plant. He's quoting Psalm 16 in Acts 2, 24 to 39. He says, For David says concerning him, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and it is in his tomb today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and 
He's interpreting in Acts 2 what David is saying at the bottom of Psalm 16 from the New Testament to the Old Testament. That's an authoritative interpretation that David is looking to Jesus Christ. And they were cut to the heart and they repented and believed and 3,000 people were saved and added to their number. The New Testament church was birthed in the hope of the Jesus of Psalm 16. The fact that God did not allow Christ to decay and death shows the world that he is the path of life. And the path of life has been made known, and all who trust him are on that path. We're, we're called to set our hearts fully on that grace. This is confidence and security that extends from this life into the next, that we take refuge in Jesus. The greatest reality that defines all other reality for us is Christ, the triumph one, over sin, over guilt, over shame, over death, over hell. All of your enemies Christ has laid bare to death. When you trust Christ, death holds no claim over you anymore. These boundary lines are the ones that reframe the pattern. And that's how with Paul we can say we are content in all circumstances, whether living in plenty or living in want. The secret of that contentment is the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. This is superior joy that expels our insecurity. And he says, in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David had resurrection faith. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. Think about this, y'all. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The thing of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So his ground for superior joy was really twofold. It's that it's God alone who is sovereign over every molecule in the world. You have to come to grips with that. I have to come to grips with that, that every single thing that happens in life is under the sovereignty of God himself. And you want to worship a sovereign God, not one where you can bind his will. Because that would mean that we're all God. And that is idolatry. But we serve a sovereign God who is in control of all things, and guess what? He's revealed himself with the heart of compassion for us and for sinners, that he entered into the human experience as a baby, not a full-grown man, to a manger, not to a royal house in the world, and lived a perfect life and then died the death that we should have died on our behalf, that we can have life in him. So you have every reason to trust Christ with whatever he's directing your way. The key is that life begins now and the path begins now. We talk about oftentimes in the already and not yet, in the inauguration of Christ and his coming as his first advent, in the kingdom arriving, and the kingdom being consummated when he comes again. So we talk about what is already and what is not yet. But I would argue that we oftentimes don't load in enough in the already that Jesus has wrought for us in hope and joy so that the world looks at us when we suffer and say, there is something different about them. I need the hope that you have. I need the hope that you have. So, he just stops right there. 
He just stops the song right there. Not to diminish it, but to leave you and I reading that utterly breathless at the goodness of God. His presence is the big point of reality. In the midst of the storm, he's the anchor that holds it. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now take that in logically. If God, the sovereign over everything in all the cosmos, there's not a rogue molecule out there, is for you and has decided to be for you, then who can be against us? Successful. And Paul asks a rhetorical question because he wants you and I to take in the silence that the answer is no one. No one can snatch you from his hand. It is the Father's will that I should raise all of them up on the last day. And that's the Jesus that we serve. That's the heart of the Father manifest in the person and work of Christ. So resurrection faith like David swallows up the boundary line of his life and all of his troubles. The worst thing that happens to us in this world, y'all, is discipline that we might know him, that we might receive him. See, the orientation of discipline is to restoration, that we might know Christ. That's the worst thing that happens to us. After that is eternal life. The best thing that happens to those who don't know Christ is this broken world. And that's incredibly sad. Because after that is the presence of God's wrath alone. So we are those who have found the boundary line of falling in pleasant places through the person and work of Christ. And I would just call you to make much of him in your circumstance. The grass is not greener. Jesus is better. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day and for this time together. Thank you for your word that instructs us on how to live and who we are. Pray that you would help us to be a people that glorifies you and honors you. Lord, help us to see the boundary lines in our lives as pleasant, simply because they give us you. Lord, if we had everything in this world but didn't have you, it would be a living hell. And we remember those days. But Lord, if we have you and we don't have anything else, then we have everything. Lord, help us to worship you alone today. In Jesus' name, amen.